The word joy is mentioned in the Bible nearly 250 times. It's Nehemiah who said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The psalmist declared that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. It is James, the brother of our Lord, who said, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Throughout the Bible, joy is always found and bound in Jesus. The joy that Jesus gives is something that inflation cannot devour. The culture can't cancel. Politicians can't paralyze. Sports can't steal. Situations can't stifle. Hurt can't harm. I wish there was somebody in the house who could testify this morning that I'm telling you the truth because Jesus gives a joy that the world can't take away. This is the joy that's found and bound in Christ. This is the joy that Jesus gives to you as a gift in your salvation. Today, uh, we begin a nine-part sermon series as we walk through the New Testament letter to the Philippians. It's to that letter that I invite you to turn your attention. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Philippians, and stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 1, allow me to begin at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending the, and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This New Testament letter has some of the common elements of a standard first century correspondence. In the first verse, the writer and readers are identified. In the second verse, a greeting is given. The author is identified as the one named Paul. No one doubts the Pauline authorship of the Philippian letter. Uh, Paul is accompanied by his son of the ministry, Timothy. Timothy was faithful to Paul in every season and station of life. Paul and Timothy. They're identified as servants of Christ Jesus. The Philippian church was near to Paul. Paul did not have to show them his authority as an apostle. He did not call himself an apostle, but rather, because of mutual love and respect, he simply called himself a servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant is the word doulos. It's slave. It's a daily bondservant. This letter is written to all the saints in Philippi. 
The word saints literally means holy ones. It's the title that's given to all of us who claim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If you're a believer in Jesus, the Bible calls you a saint. This letter is written to all the believers in the church at Philippi. Philippi was a leading city in Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul had founded a church in Philippi during his second missionary journey, somewhere around the year 51 AD in the first century. Now he's writing this letter 10 years later. He's under house arrest. He's in Rome. He's there around 61 AD. He writes this letter to this church, a church that he loves, a church that is dear and close to him. He writes the letter to all the saints at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons. Those two words, overseers and deacons, represent the two offices of any and every New Testament church. Every New Testament church has overseers and deacons. Both offices are equally important and necessary. The word overseer is commonly understood as bishop. Its synonym is the word that we render elder. So a bishop elder is the first office of a New Testament church. In our context, a bishop elder will be understood as a pastor. That's the first office. The second office is the office of deacon. It is equally necessary. Every New Testament church has overseers and deacons. If you ask the question, what is the difference between an overseer and a deacon? What's the difference between pastor and deacon? I can describe it in this way. That an overseer is one who serves by leading. A deacon is one who leads by serving. Together, they minister to and through the church according to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in the second verse, gives a word of greeting. Now, normally, in a, new, in, a, in a letter of the first century, it simply would state the Greek word for greeting. But he changes it up a little bit. He says the word grace. Grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a common way for Paul to begin most of his letters. Because he knows that everything about the Christian faith begins and ends with the grace of God Almighty. The rest of our passage is really an extended expression of thanksgiving. So Paul says, uh, I have you in my mind, verses 3 to 6. I have you in my heart, verses 7 and 8. I have you in my prayers, verses 9 to 11. Paul begins and says, listen, church, I love you so much. I have you in my mind. Verse 3 begins, Every remembrance of you causes me to give thanks to God. Every memory that I have of you, Paul says, it causes me to stop and give thanks to God Almighty. The Greek word for thanks is Eucharist. I mean, he's saying every time I think of you, I have thanksgiving all over again. I am so thankful for you because for all of you, in every prayer, I always give thanks. Now, church, let me ask you, honestly, how many people are in your life that upon every remembrance of them, it causes you to thank God? If I'm just being real, 
There are some memories of some people that cause me to want to throw up. I just got to be honest with you. But Paul says, every remembrance of all of you in all my prayers, I always give thanks. I thank God for you in all my prayers. In every remembrance, when you come across the screen of my mind, I stop and I thank God for you. The reality is this is how church ought to be. That when we think of each other, that when we are uh, about our daily life, and maybe we haven't seen each other for a while, but when we think about each other, we stop and give thanks to God. Paul says, for all of you, in all my prayers, all the time, I always give thanks with joy. That word joy is the most popular word in the Philippian letter. There are only four chapters. It's mentioned 19 times. Numerous times in every chapter, Paul is going to say something about joy. He says, I pray with joy in my heart for you and in my mind for you. Why? Because verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The reason I can rejoice, the reason that I have joy in my prayers and in my remembrance of you is because of your partnership in the gospel. That word partnership may also be translated in your Bible as uh, participation. Um, Some translations may say the word fellowship, which is the most accurate because the Greek word he uses is koinonia. Most of the time, koinonia is translated as fellowship. And in our church context, when we think of fellowship, what do we think about? We think about coffee and donuts. We think about lunch with one another. We think about attending a church-wide covered dish potluck event. We think of food. But the reality is, biblical fellowship, biblical koinonia has little to nothing to do with food. It has everything to do with you sharing in the blessing and the burden of gospel ministry. So when Paul says, I pray with joy, I pray with joy because of our partnership. You have been sharing with me over these last 10 years, over this decade, you've been sharing with me, Paul says, in the blessing and the burden of doing the ministry of the gospel. We have a partnership. We have koinonia. Now in our passage... Koinonia is tied pretty closely to financial generosity. In fact, later in Philippians, in chapter 4, he will speak about how the Philippian church was one of the leading churches of Macedonia for when he was collecting an offering for the suffering saints of Jerusalem, the Philippian church gave over and beyond what they had. He also is saying, I want to thank you because even in the course of my ministry, time and time again, you have financially given to me. The reason he's writing this letter in no small part is to be a thank you note to them for the most recent love gift that had been given to them, the love offering that had come to him even while he was in prison under house arrest in Rome. He's there, he's attached to a Roman soldier, and he says, even now in this circumstance, you are being so kind to me, you have sent me financial gifts and resources to sustain me in this moment. We have a partnership in the gospel. So for him, koinonia 
it is tied to generosity. But Paul would also tell you that's not the only string that ties people together in fellowship. But before I leave that, let me just remind all of us that far too often, the last thing we surrender to the Lord is our wallet. That when we demonstrate generosity in the blessing and the burden of doing ministry together, there's something about that generosity that knits us together. There's something about that koinonia that even, dare I say it, even in the midst of an inflation, even in the midst of times of economic distress, when God's people are faithful and generous with their financial resources, it somehow, way, knits us together in the partnership of doing gospel ministry in and through this congregation. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, we have koinonia, we have fellowship, we have partnership. Now, there are other ways that we are tied together, and the apostle knows that very clearly. He also knows that we share hot-hearted evangelism. And we're also going to share love one for another and share unity among the body. Now, Paul's going to address all these things in the letter. He's not saying that the church at Philippi is perfect, but she does excel in numerous areas. And he says, when I think about all of this, I realize that we have a shared partnership. We have koinonia. We have a fellowship in the gospel. And Paul says, I am confident. I'm confident not just in you, but even more so I'm confident in the God of you. For he who began a good work will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In verse 6, he says that he, who's the he? The he is God. He who began a good work. What is the good work that God begins in your heart and mind? It's the work of salvation. It's God's salvation according to God's gospel. And God has never changed his plan. It's by faith in the accomplished work of Christ. It's always been that from the very beginning to the very end. And God who began a good work in you, he will carry it to completion. So I want you to know that this salvation that you have by faith in Jesus Christ, it did not originate with you. It didn't start with you. It wasn't your idea. It originated with him. It is God who's the one who initiated this thing. What Paul is saying is that if he started it, he'll finish it. If he began it, he will end it. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. If I'm just real honest with you, my plans, my ideas, my goals, they fail. But God's plans can never be thwarted. God cannot be stopped. I don't want a salvation that's dependent upon my ability. Because if it's dependent on me, I will lose it. I will fail. I will falter. But God, God's plans always come true. And God cannot be stopped. So what he started in your life, he will carry it to completion. This idea of completion is a word that should be translated successful finish. What God starts He will successfully finish in your life. 
He will carry it to completion. So who's doing the heavy lifting? You or God? God is. God secured your salvation in Jesus Christ. God is the one who, who, who escorts you and guides you in this life and the life to come. It is God who's doing the heavy lifting. You're just responding in obedient faith. But God is the one who's carrying you to completion. I bet there are more than a few of us that could give testimony that there are times in our spiritual walk of salvation that we don't think we can take another step. And it's God who steps in to carry us. He carries us until completion. He carries us until a successful finish. When's this going to happen? The day of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means the day that Jesus comes to get you. Now, in a cosmic sense, the day of the Lord is the day of the second return of Christ, the second coming of our Lord. But we also know, because of other writings in the New Testament, that at the moment of a Christian's death, Jesus himself comes and escorts you to eternity. Jesus himself comes to guide you unto glory. So whether it's the day of the Lord at your deathbed, when Jesus comes to retrieve you and say your mansion is ready, come and enjoy, or whether it's in that cosmic moment when Jesus will descend with the archangel and with all of the trumpet call of God, regardless, it is Jesus who's gonna do the work. He who began a good work in you, he will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, because of this great confidence that I have, not just in you, but in the God of you, I want you to know, church, you are in my mind. Secondly, he says, not only are you in my mind, but you're also in my heart. Verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to think this way about you, since I have all of you in my heart. Maybe what Paul is visualizing and referencing is that garment of the high priest called an ephod. An ephod was an ornate garment that the high priest of antiquity would wear as he went about the business of the Lord, doing the work of God on behalf of the people of God. Now the ephod was highly decorated. It was an ornate garment. And about in the center of the chest, there would have been 12 stones. And on those 12 stones were written 12 names. They were the 12 names of the tribes of Israel. So in a very picturesque way, whenever the high priest did the work of God for God's people, he always had the people of God on his heart. He always had the people of God close to his heart. That he, he heard and could look and see those stones with those names on them. And behind those names represented real people. And he represented those individuals as he went before God Almighty. Maybe this is what Paul has in mind. When he says that however I'm doing my work, whether I am in chains or defending the gospel... I have you in my heart. You go with me. You share with me in this gospel ministry. We are so bound together. We are so tied together. Not only are you in my mind, but secondly, you are in my heart. 
It was the African-American preacher who stood up in front of a large crowd to preach. And as he stood up, he made this statement. It sure is crowded up here. It sure is crowded up here. Every time, beloved, that I stand to preach, there are a crowd of people that stand with me. There are a lot of people who are in my heart. Because of the Lord's leading, because of the experiences that the Lord has given unto me, there are numerous people that are in my heart. That when I stand to preach, there are numerous people who stand with me to preach to the point that sometimes this platform gets crowded. You may not see them, you may not know it, but sometimes I get squeezed a little bit because the people on my left and the people on my right, the people in front of me and the people behind me. And you may not know it, but sometimes I just might move because somebody on the stage just got happy and somebody who's standing with me to preach just is moving a little bit. And I wonder this morning, can you see them? Because one day they'll do an autopsy of me and on my heart will be engraved some of the names of these people. Of course, when I stand to preach, my preaching professors stand with me. Robert Smith Jr. and Haddon Robinson. I don't know if you can see them, but they're here with me every time I preach. When I preach, my family is with me. My parents, my grandparents, can you see them? Ed and Trudy, Marvin and Hallie, Jesse and Mildred. Over on my other side, can you see Danny and Shirley and Jane Ellen and Molly Grace and Nathan? I don't know if you can recognize her, but Mrs. Burge stands with me. She was my second grade Sunday school teacher. When I came to faith in Jesus Christ, she taught me more than any single person about what it means to be a father of the Lord. Do you see Miss Burge when she's standing here with me? Do you see Coach Boyd? Coach Boyd Phillips, I'll never forget, when I was ordained into ministry, it was Coach Boyd who came. He knelt down and he prayed over me. And I will never forget the prayers that he prayed for me. Do you see Mark and Michelle, Dallas and Melody, Tim and Sherry? Do, do you see over here that there's Shane and Russell and Wayne in another congregation? Those were my Peter, James, and John. Do you see them? They're standing with me. Do you see those who have educated me? Do you see Tim, Timothy standing behind me? Do you see Calvin behind me? Do you see Norfleet behind me? Do you see Ken behind me? Do you see Frank behind me? All these men and women who poured into me every time I stand up to preach, these individuals crowd the platform with me. And all my friends, if I could begin to enumerate all the people of this congregation that stand with me so that every time I preach, if I go someplace out of state, if I go preach at another church for another revival, I will always stand up and I'll say something like this. I bring you grace and greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and from all the saints that gather at First Baptist Church Pelham. What I'm telling that congregation is the platform is kind of crowded today because you are with me. Why? Because I have you in my heart. Do you see all these people that stand to preach? That as I stand and confirm the gospel, that as I stand and proclaim the gospel, all these and so many more stand with me to preach. 
One day they will do an autopsy of me. And on my heart you'll find these names. These names that are engraved upon me because of the indelible impression they've made on my faith journey. It was C.H. Spurgeon who said, a good character is the best tombstone. Those who were loved by you and were helped by you will remember you. So carve your name on hearts and not on marble. Carve your name on hearts and not on marble. One day when you die, Christian, and they open you up and do an autopsy of you, whose names will they find engraved upon your heart? Can I ask it another way? I wonder how many hearts are out there that have your name engraved upon them. It's one thing to ask the question, who's made an indelible impression upon you? That's a good question to ask, a good question to answer. But the follow-up is even more powerful. Whose hearts have you shaped? Give me names of people that when they do an autopsy on them, will find your name because you are engraved upon them. If you stop and think about it, we say that we're gospel people, that everything about what we do is the gospel. And that is so true. If it wasn't for the gospel, in all likelihood, we would have never met. If it wasn't for the gospel, you and I probably would never have met. I was born and raised in Kentucky of all places. I probably, if it wasn't for the gospel, would have lived in Kentucky for the rest of my life. But praise God for the gospel, I came to the sweet land of Alabama, right? But it's because of the gospel that you and I have met. If you look around the room, if it wasn't for the gospel, you probably wouldn't know these other people. It's the gospel that unites us in biblical koinonia, biblical fellowship and partnership. And Paul says it is good and right for us to think about one another in this way because we have one another in our hearts. Paul says in verse 8, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection is elsewhere translated as compassion. It's the Greek word splonknon. Now, splonknon is a weird word. It literally means inward parts. It's the guts of a person. When Jesus is described in Mark chapter 6, he lands on the shore, he sees the crowd, and Mark tells us that on this day that he's about to feed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish, that on this day Jesus had compassion on them. That word compassion is splonknon. It is this word. It is affection. It means that the guts of Jesus shook when he saw the needs of the people. He was rocked to the core of his existence. He was, he was shaken to the point of doing something. If you have affection for someone, you don't just say it, but you've got to show it. And this word splonknon means that your guts shake. It moves you to action. Paul says, I long for you with the affection of Christ. I long for you with the compassion of our Lord. I long for you to the point that my guts shake. And why is this? Because I have you 
in my heart. Paul says, not only are you in my mind and in my heart, but third and finally, I have you in my prayers. This is verses 9, 10, and 11. Paul says, I am praying for you, and this is my prayer, that you may have abounding love, abled discernment, and a blameless character. Those are the three things that he prays for the saints at Philippi. He said, I want you to have these three things. I want you to have abounding love, agape love. I want you to have able discernment, to discern what is best, what is best for you to do and to say, and what's best for you not to do and not to say, because we need discernment, don't we? We need discernment on knowing what we should do and not do, what we should say and not say. Paul says, I am praying that you will have able discernment to be able to discern what is best. And I'm praying that you will have a blameless character. He says, I want you to be pure and blameless. That means I want you to be pure in your morality. I want you to be blameless and innocent in the sight of God. Friends, if you ever wonder what to pray for somebody else and you don't know what else to say, just go with this trifecta. Just just say these three things for that person that you're praying for. Lord, please bless him, bless her with abounding love. Let them know the love of God, the love from God, the love for God. Let them show that love. And oh God, please help him, help her to have able discernment to know today what is best and what is right. And Lord, please let them today make decisions so they have a pure, blameless character in your sight. The way Paul writes this, those three characteristics seem to be summarized in verse 11, being filled with the fruit of righteousness. That if you're filled with the fruit of righteousness, you will demonstrate abounding love, able discernment, and a blameless character. Now what's interesting about that word filled is that it is a passive participle. You may be saying to yourself, Pastor, I did not come to church for an English lesson. And you're right. But you did come to church for a theological lesson. The passive mood describes an action that's done to you or for you. So what Paul is saying is that you don't fill yourself with righteousness. But you are filled by someone else with righteousness. It is a passive description. It's not active. It's not that you actively fill your own life with righteousness, with declared innocence. No, no, no. You are being filled. You have been filled. Someone else has filled you with his righteousness. Now, who is that someone else? He answers the question because he knows it's going to be on the minds of the people. So the very last phrase says this comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So who fills you, beloved, with righteousness? Jesus. Jesus is the one who fills you with his righteousness. Righteousness in Philippians and throughout the New Testament is declared innocence in the sight of God. You can't do enough to declare yourself innocent in the sight of God. Your best efforts, according to Isaiah, filthy rags before the Lord. Who fills you with righteousness? Jesus. 
Because of his work on the cross, because of his success at the empty tomb, because of what Jesus did on Easter Sunday morning, because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried on the third day, was raised from the dead. When you have faith and you trust and believe that's who Jesus is, you go from death unto life. You go from no righteousness to righteousness because you can't fill yourself with enough righteousness. So Jesus fills you for yourself. Jesus is the one who fills up your righteousness. So it's all about Jesus. So what Paul says is that let me begin with Jesus and let me end with Jesus. He's in verse 1, he's in verse 11. The first thing he says is that we are servants of Jesus Christ. The last thing he says is that your innocent righteousness is because of Jesus Christ. Jesus forms bookends around this opening paragraph. Jesus forms bookends around this letter. Jesus forms bookends around this book that we call the Bible. Jesus forms bookends around the church. Jesus forms bookends around this congregation. Jesus forms bookends around your life and mine. It is all about Christ and him crucified. It is all about what Jesus does in and through us. He declares us righteous, and then we live out that righteous acts in obedience. It's all about what Jesus has done. So we begin with Jesus, and we end with Jesus. So that the hymn writer is exactly right. My faith has found a resting place. It's not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. In the Bible, joy is always tied and tethered to Jesus. Where there is joy, there's Jesus. Where there is Jesus, there's joy. If you have true joy in your life, it's only because of the true Jesus who has saved you. So because of the gospel, because of what God has done in you and in me, beloved, today I've come to tell you that I've got you in my mind and I've got you in my heart. And I've got you in my prayers. To God be the glory for the joy that he gives us in Jesus Christ and him crucified, buried, and raised on the third day. It's all about the gospel. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. On this day, we have the awesome privilege of being able to commune with you in the Lord's Supper, as we partake of the bread and the cup. Father, will you please use this next song to prepare us to take by faith the broken bread and the shed blood as we feast on you by faith. And thank you, O God, for applying the blood of Christ to our sinful lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.